0: Good morning. The title of this sermon is The Lord's Justice and Mercy. Before we dive into the sermon, would you please pray with me for God to bless our time of worship in the Word. Father, we praise you this morning for the rain that waters the plants and the animals and gives us relief from the heat We praise you this morning for giving us life and breath. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness, for your holiness and righteousness, your justice, your compassion, your love, your greatness, your majesty. Lord, we confess to you that we are a church who is a needy church. We need your power through the Holy Spirit to encourage us through this walk of Life, We need to be edified and strengthened by your word. And Lord, we confess that only the Holy Spirit can open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to your word. And experience a transforming power. And Lord, we thank you now for your faithfulness that you desire to wash your church with the water of the word that you may present her without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Father, we ask that you would do that, and we thank you because you are faithful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, according to various sources, the Great Wall of China is, well, I was going to say how long the Great Wall of China is, but since this is more of like a family Um, gathering living room gathering what how long do you think the Great Wall of China is just some wild guesses more than one mile that's safe guess 5,000 over here how long is the Great Wall of China well according to more than one uh, source the Great Wall of China is 13,171 miles long. Now, to put it in perspective, I can barely jog two miles without stopping. How much more building a wall that's 13,171 miles long? During In in different parts of the wall, the wall can reach up to heights of 16 to 26 feet. Construction began around 221 B.C. by the emperor Qin Shi Huang dynasty. And throughout the years, it was completed by um, different dynasties like the Ming dynasty. It was built to protect them from the invasions of the northern nations, as well as to impose duties on goods that were transported along the Silk Road. So there were two primary purposes of why it was built. The workers consisted of soldiers, peasants, and rebels. As you can imagine, it was a huge undertaking. And as a result, families were separated and many workers died. Isaiah 59 describes for us another great wall, but this one separates God and man. Here's the main burden of the sermon. The Lord is able to save. He's able to hear our prayers but sin separates. Therefore, he will repay his enemies with wrath and redeem those who repent. That's the main burden of the text. A listener's discretion advice. Chapter 59, about 75% of chapter 59 is about transgressions, iniquities, and sin. And if I'm to be a faithful preacher of God's word, you're going to hear a lot of that. But that's not where we end. That's not the point of the text. Our text neatly divides into three sections that help us to understand the message of chapter 59. First, the Lord indicts Israel for sins of injustice and violence. Second, the nation confesses their sin. And third, the Lord intervenes to bring injustice and redemption. That's how we'll proceed this morning in chapter 59. First, the Lord brings an indictment to Israel for their sins of injustice and violence. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Behold... The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Verses 1 and 2 parallels verses 1 through 3 in chapter 58. You see the people were crying out loud and lifting up their voices in prayer like a loud trumpet. They sought the Lord daily, but God does not seem to answer their prayers. Israel did not feel or did not feel a sense of God's presence in their myths of their pursuit in their fasting and their praying. So was God's hand too short? Was his ears, did it become so dull that he could not hear their prayers? The emphatic answer is by no means. God is omnipotent in his power and he is omnipresent in space and time. To put it in another way, God is ubiquitous in space and time. His presence is manifested fully everywhere. His presence is manifested fully everywhere at all times. You see, church, God was ready to help his people. So why did he seem like he was far and distant and silent to the nation of Israel? Well, it was because of the barrier Israel had erected between them and God. And that barrier was their flagrant sin against God. Habakkuk 1 13 says that God is too holy to look upon evil. Now, notice in our text that Israel is not in need of the deliverance from the Assyrians, nor the Babylonians, nor the Persians. Now, what they needed to be delivered from was the power of sin. And it's no different today, right? we are still in need for God to deliver us from the power of sin. Has anyone mastered over their sin? While it is true that for those in Christ Jesus, that we have all been delivered from the dominion of sin, we are no longer slaves of sin, but the nature of sin in us is still being worked out. We are still being perfected. We are being sanctified And the power of sin sin still remains in this world that we live in. If iniquities and sin can be a barrier of separation between God and man, then we probably should know what the iniquities and sin that the Israelites were committing. For Israel, in verses 3 through 4, They were guilty of quite a selection of sin. They were guilty of acts of violence. When they lifted up their hands in prayer, their hands were filled with blood. They were stained with blood. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 15. C.H. Spurden says this, the velvet paw of the tiger of sin conceals a lacerating claw. They were guilty of deceit, and of social injustice. They were guilty in their thought and they were guilty in their deeds. And just like today, our society is not that different. Sin came naturally to them as it does the world. They were guilty of, or they were eager to sin. They relied on their empty pleas. Isaiah says, they spoke lies. They conceived mischief. They gave birth to iniquity. Their works were works of iniquity. Their deeds were deeds of violence. Look with me at verse seven. Their feet ran to evil and they were swift to shed innocent blood. And in their sin, Israel tried to manipulate God. They delighted to draw near to him, chapter 58, verse 2. They fasted, yet they pursued their own pleasure and oppressed all their workers, verse 3. God cannot be mocked, church. God will not allow himself to be mocked. Therefore, he ignored their fasting and their praying, 1 John 1, 6 says this, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. How true is that, church? Israel preferred to live in their sin and while, while, while having the appearance of a, a relationship with the Lord. Church, We can't be in God's word and play in the world. We can't pursue godliness and yet continue to live in worldliness. The church cannot look like the world. In fact, the church is the called out ones from the world. And we have been separated from the world by the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes... Christians experience times when God seems far distant, where He seems silent, and that He doesn't answer their prayers. They've spent time, they've spent extra time in prayer, they've spent time uh, reading in God's Word, perhaps they even spent some time fasting, yet God seems to be distant, and yet God seems to be silent. Have you ever considered why? Would it be because in their pursuit in, of him in prayer, in their fasting, they continue to commit flagrant sin? Church, God cannot be manipulated. Christians cannot experience his blessings and continue to live a sinful lifestyle. Now, sometimes when God seems distant and silent, it has nothing to do with the commitment of sin. In God's mysterious and glorious ways, the feeling of his absence and the feeling of his silence does not mean that he is not there with you. Sometimes God uses distance, and sometimes God uses silence to teach you to trust in him, to be patient in him. The Apostle Paul quoted verses 7 and 8 in our text in Romans chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. He says this in Romans 3, There is no one righteous, not even one, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And then he says this in verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's verse seven in our text. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. That's verse eight in our text. You see, What Paul was doing was he was using Isaiah 59 verses 7 to 8 to use Isaiah's language to describe the entire sinful human race. In Isaiah 59, God's people did not know the way of peace. There was no justice in their paths. They have made their paths crooked, Isaiah says. No one who treads on them knows peace in Isaiah's day, Israel lived committing great injustice and they bred injustice. Isaiah uses an illustration. He uses, the na- he uses nature to illustrate how Israel had become so depraved. He says, they hatched adder's eggs. The hatching of eggs produced new life, but these eggs only produced death. They netted spider webs, and as pretty as spiderwebs are in their symmetry, it comes crashing down when one main um, strand, strand is broken. Their web of lies only led to frustration. Isaiah says in verse 11, they growled like bears and they moaned like doves. C.H. Spurgeon again says this of sin. The sins of today are the sorrows of tomorrow. As those in Christ Jesus, I want us, church, to examine our hearts. Let's ask the Lord to reveal what barriers that we have erected between us and him. Now, I want to be very clear on this. As it relates to salvation, Romans 8 tells us that there is nothing that we can do to separate us from the love of God. There is nothing that we can do or not do to lose our salvation. I want to be clear about that. But in relationship, Psalm 66 tells us that God will not listen to our prayers and praise if we cherish iniquities in our heart. Amen. Amen. God help us. Husbands, we are to live with our wives in an understanding way, showing them honor so that our prayers are not hindered. Wives, you can give me a high five later. We can fist bump. We can touch elbows. You can give me a nod later for that. You're a gift to us. Wives, you are heroes. Moms, you are God's gift to us, the church. The, Lord, the Lord's indictment of Israel's sin was undeniable. Therefore, Isaiah led God's people from blaming, God, from blaming God to clear awareness of their own responsibility of their transgressions, their iniquities, and their sin. Next, we'll see that Isaiah will lead God's people in humble confession, in humble confession. Note the change here in from third-person plural speech, they, there," to first-person plural speech, we, us, and our. Note that. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Therefore, justice is from us, Do you hear the confession? And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Here, Isaiah clearly identifies himself with the people of God. He doesn't point a finger at them. No, this prophet joined with the nations, he felt the pain and the sorrow of their condition. In verses 9 through 15a, Isaiah and the people of God make a full confession of their iniquities, their transgressions, and their sin. They owned up to their flagrant sin and admitted full responsibility. Their transgressions were multiplied. Look at verse 12. Their sins testified against them, verse 12. They knew their iniquities, verse 12. They denied the Lord and they turned back from following him, verse 13. This is their full, unabridged confession of their shortcomings. And because of their transgressions and sins and iniquities, righteousness stood far from them. They did not deal truthfully in the marketplace. In this section of chapter 59, we don't see them making any excuses. Oftentimes when Melinda and I I get in an argument... I reason with myself, I got angry with her because of what she said. You don't see that here. There is no pointing of fingers, there is no blame shifting here. They owned up to their shortcomings. Hermeneutically, what I mean by that is how do we understand rightly this section? we need to ask the question, why did Isaiah place verses 9 through 15a right smack in the middle of chapter 59? How does that, what does that mean in light of what he said before and what he says after? Why is this section here? Well, I believe The Lord would say this, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Proverbs 28 verse 13. Why is this section here? Why is this section of acknowledging sin and confessing sin here? Because recognition of sin prepares the way to repentance and repentance prepares the way to redemption and redemption prepares the way to salvation. Recognition of sin leads us to understand that our hope in light of our fallenness cannot come from us, church. It cannot come from our efforts. Our hope must come from beyond ourselves. So, in humility, recognition of our sin and owning up to it tears down the barriers of sin because God gives grace to the humble, because His mercy is greater than our sin. But God's word also tells us that He opposes those who choose to continue in, in a sinful lifestyle as they will make that wall of separation higher and thicker and longer listen if you don't call yourself a christian then verses one through eight is showing you that your sin separates you from this holy god israel's sinful lifestyle only leads from sorrow to sorrow from pain to pain from suffering to suffering Listen, if you're listening this morning, then I believe God is calling you to own your sin and repent of them. It is this recognition of sin, owning up to it and confessing it that leads to freedom from it. But listen, unbeliever, you can't break the bondage of of your sin on your own. Your only hope of true freedom is beyond you and your abilities. This is why we need Jesus. As a church, I want to lead us in a holy moment. I want to pause and, in silence, give us the opportunity to acknowledge our sin, own the responsibilities of it, and confess it to God. Let's do that. Let's pause quietly. let's take it one step further. If you sinned against someone and it has caused a barrier between you, then apply chapter 29 later today. Own your sin, confess that to the offended and ask for forgiveness and watch this wall of separation come crumbling down. Verses 15 through 21 tells us that the only time when, when we humble ourselves and own up to our sins, God is, is there to hear our prayers. God is there to help in times of need. Listen, church, when we do this, 9 through 15, he moves on our behalf. Note the change in speech from first person plural, we, us, our, to third person singular, he, him, his. Look with me at verse 15b and 16. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And his own arm or then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him church the Lord saw the people's iniquities transgressions and sin and it displeased him the Lord saw that the people were helpless in their sin the Lord saw that there was no one righteous enough to intercede for his people here is the greatest hope of the church and the lost and dying world the God of heaven and earth sees the fallenness of man he saw it, and he, and it displeased him. And so by his grace, he did not leave us on our own. He not only saw it, but he did something about it. From his marvelous light, his strong arm reached into our darkness and saved us. church. What an awesome God we serve. Praise you, Father. His steadfast love, faithfulness, mercy, and compassion moved him to bring salvation to his people. Here's how Isaiah pictures or images God. He images God for us as a divine warrior to destroy the enemy which is sin. So how did God do that? Well, he put on his armor. However, he doesn't put on like an under armor shirt like we do. No, he put on his armor. His armor was not physical but spiritual. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, where righteousness stood far off from the people, he put it on and he came to Zion. He came to his people and he came to us. Where he saw that there was no man to intercede for his people, he put on the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And Isaiah says, God will repay the wicked with his wrath, those who continue to reject his grace of love and mercy and, for, and forgiveness. One commentator said that this word repay is from the verb salam, which in a sense, in, in a sense um, it, it, it communicates a paying of debt. Therefore, God will satisfy the wages of sin with death for his enemies all the nations that rage against God will fear the name of the Lord because his fury will be like a rushing stream. It was like when Arwen called for the waters of the stream to become a rushing flood to defeat the evil Nazgul in the movie, The Lord of the Rings. To those who do not turn from their transgressions, the Lord will come as a divine warrior. And you see, church, because we're wired for justice, it doesn't surprise us that a holy God would bring wrath against sin. But here's what should surprise us. Here's what should capture our gaze this Holy God longs to forgive sinners. And for those who repent of their sin, the Lord will come as a redeemer. The coming of the redeemer was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He brought salvation to his people when he stretched out his loving arms on the cross. Jesus did not come to destroy the occupying enemy, the Romans. No, he came to destroy man's ultimate enemy, sin. He defeated sin by one of the most humblest ways ever. It is the most humblest way ever by laying down his life for ours. He pacified the debt of sin by laying down his life in our place. And by the shedding of his blood, he cleansed us. He washed us all of unrighteousness. And because God the Father is holy and just, he must pour out his wrath on sin. But Jesus took on that wrath that was meant for us in light of our sin. And those who turn from their iniquity will receive full pardon from death. Church, our God is awesome. Amen. For the unbelievers who are listening, your transgressions, iniquities, and sin have placed a barrier of separation between you and God. And again, you are not able to tear this great wall of separation down. But if you confess your sin and turn from them, then the Redeemer will come to you like he did when he came to Zion and when he came to that great hill where the cross was. He will tear down that barrier of sin and say to you, all is forgiven and he will make you his own. Repent today and put your faith and trust in the Lord, and today will be a day of your salvation. His arm is not too shortened to save. His ear is not too dull to hear your prayer of confession. Today, as Christians, we can also put on the armor of God. Paul quotes verses 16 and 17 in our text in Ephesians 6 he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because our battle is not against flesh and and blood. Our battle is not physical, but spiritual. It's against the rulers. It's against the powers over this present darkness. It's against the spiritual forces of evil. Note Paul's imperative in Ephesians 6. You don't have to turn there. He says in verse 11, we have to put on the whole armor of God. Did you get that? We have to put it on. He says, we have to take it up in verse 13. Listen, church. If God put on his armor, then how much more should we put on the armor of God? What a privilege, church. What an advantage, what victory we get to wear his armor. It's not like putting on a football helmet. It's not like putting on a shoulder pad which has a breastplate. It's not like putting on arm pads which serves like a shield. It's not, putting on, it's not like putting on cleats for shoes. If you've ever played football before, If you ever got hit hard, it still hurts. It still hurts, even with full pads. But the full armor of God has divine power to make us able to stand firm, to stand against the schemes of the devil. Church, how are you doing putting on and taking up the full armor of God? In conclusion, the Lord is the divine warrior who brought justice to those who reject his offer of free grace, of mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. He is the redeemer who brought salvation to those who repent of their sins and and their transgressions. And last, the Lord is the covenant keeper. Now stay with me, church. I know that the The worship team is coming up, and that can be a source of distraction, but the word of God must remain center in our attention today. He says in verse 21, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What's the significance of the spirit of God and the word of God in the covenant of God? The spirit of God comes to the people of God to cleanse them from all righteousness. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6 his unclean lips were cleansed so that he can speak the word of God to the people of God. And in order for the people of God to be the light of God to the people of God, to the other nations, God must cleanse his people. Only then they can carry the word of God to this lost and dying world. Only then that their light will break forth like the dawn. In Acts chapter 2, when the apostles were filled by the Holy Spirit, people from many nations came and they heard the word of God preached. They heard the gospel, and on that day the Lord added over 3000 souls to the church. The divine warrior's purpose was not to destroy the world. No, he came to redeem the world and to reconcile the world to himself. And so for us today, church, God has given us his spirit to empower us to speak the word of God, the gospel, so that those who are living in iniquity and transgressions and sins can experience the grace of redemption that glorifies God the Father and exalts Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, church? Let's respond in worship to our God who came to redeem us.